We are going to continue our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to use one that is in the pew rack in front of you. This fall, we're working, working our way through this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and what we've said uh, numerous times already throughout this series is that the summary of this book can be stated in this way, that uh, God in the person of Jesus Christ is uniting all things in him. In other words, what God is up to in this world is that he is making all things new. Uh, everything that has been broken, divided, fractured by sin, God is in the business of bringing re- restoration and renewal to those things. And we've seen uh, in this letter how Paul has highlighted the fact that followers of Jesus, God's people who make up the church, our calling, our responsibility uh, is that we are to make visible this work in the world. In other words, we could say it like this, that Jesus' presence is made tangible in the world through us. Last week, we made a transition in the series. We transitioned into chapter 4. And if you were here, you might remember me saying how uh, we could kind of think of Ephesians uh, in two large sections, chapters 1 through 3, and then chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul does a lot of teaching. He lays down a lot of doctrine. Now, I hope that it was your experience as we went through that, that it, it, you didn't encounter it as doctrine that may, in the way that maybe you sometimes think about it, as lifeless or doctrine is our enemy. Hopefully, you saw it as beautiful, um, as uh, God's good uh, desires and intentions for our lives. When we get to chapter 4, there's somewhat of a transition. Now, Paul, what he wants to do is he wants to take all of that instruction, all of that teaching, all of that doctrine, and he wants to help us to understand how we are meant to live it out practically in the everyday stuff of life. Last week, we focused in on um, this theme of unity in the church. Um, We also talked about how Jesus is the good gift giver, how he gives each of us gifts to use in the context of the church in the world Uh, in order to make him known. We come to verse 17 this morning. And so I want to read verses 17 through 24. Um, Really, it's verses 17 through the end of chapter 4 is a section, but there's just so much here that we have to break it up into two weeks. So next week, Pastor Israel will cover chapters, uh, verses 25 uh, through 32. But let me read uh, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What I want to do now is I want to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to be the one to teach us this morning. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do not even need to ask you to come to be with us at this point because you have been with us from the start of the service. We now, though, ask that you would be with us in a special and unique way through your word. We pray that you would help us to know truth, help us to be transformed by truth. And I pray that you would do this regardless of where we find ourselves right now in this moment, whether we're believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. Holy Spirit, open our minds, open our hearts to Jesus. We pray for our good and for his glory. Amen. Have you ever made a transition in life, whether it be school um, or work, in which you needed a new wardrobe, a new set of clothes, maybe a new uniform for school or work? Uh, When I got out of seminary, uh, the first position I took was at a church that is more traditional. And so it was made known to me that uh, it would be expected for me to wear uh, suits, ties, Um, on Sunday mornings, especially when I was participating in the worship service. Now, this was a huge adjustment for me because I honestly don't know if I had any suit jackets at the time. Maybe I had a tie or two, but this was not a set of clothes that I was used to wearing. And so guess what I had to do? I had to go shopping. I had to go out looking for a new wardrobe, a new set of clothes to go with this new uh, season of life that I was entering. Maybe you can relate uh, in some way. Well, as we come to our passage this morning, I bet that you um, don't know or don't think about Christianity in this way, but Christianity is all about changing your clothes. It really is. It's all about changing your clothes. And as we go through this text, uh, we'll talk about what that means. And of course, it does not mean our physical clothes, Uh, this uh, expression that is used um, here in these verses, and it's used elsewhere in the New Testament of putting off and putting on, uh, is used metaphorically. Uh, But what Paul has in mind, the language that he's using here, would have been used uh, literally uh, to refer to changing clothes. So Christianity, as we're going to see, is all about changing clothes. Here's how we can also think about it. Jesus invites us into a new way of being human. Jesus invites us into a new way of being human. And in our passage, as we're going to go through it this morning, we're going to see how Paul wants us to understand this new life in Jesus, exactly how Jesus wants to make us truly human, how he wants to remake us, and how we live this out on a daily basis. So we're going to look at the old self and the new self. Old self, new self. Let's begin with the old self, because as we look at the old self and the new self, we'll get an idea of how exactly Jesus wants to make us new and give us new clothes. Verse 17, to start, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What I want to point out here is that the language that Paul uses here actually echoes uh, the very first verse of this chapter. So chapter 4, verse 1. There, Paul wrote this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling 
to which you have been called. So did you catch that there? In both uh, of these verses, Paul is uh, giving a command. He's giving instruction. It has to do with a way to walk and a way not to walk. Walk is actually a theme throughout the letter. Uh, Back in chapter 2, verse 10, we heard the language of walk in good works that God has prepared in advance for us. In chapter 5, verse 1, we'll eventually hear the words walk in love. What is meant by this word walk? Well, it's similar to the word live. They, they, They could be used interchangeably, walk and live. And walk is a metaphor for the whole of life. The whole of life. So not just one area of life, but the whole of life. It encompasses every aspect of life. It was used in Judaism for living from an ethical point of view. So it has ethics, morality, how we live, our behavior in mind here. And here in verse 17, Paul says, don't walk like a Gentile. Don't walk like a Gentile. What does Paul mean by this? Why would he say this? And it almost seems confusing at first because the people to whom Paul is writing in this letter, the majority of them, if not possibly all of them, would have been Gentiles. So he's writing to Gentiles and he's saying, don't walk like a Gentile. What is meant here? Well, Paul is not saying that their um, ethnicity is erased. We, we've touched on this throughout the, ser- the, the, the series. Um, that we come to, when we come together as a di- diverse family in the church, the expectation is not that our uh, ethnicities, our backgrounds are erased. Um, rather, we bring them together and learn from each other and learn um, about God's beauty in that. But what we don't want to do is elevate our ethnicity or elevate our cultural background above our identity in Jesus. And this is where Paul's driving here. This is where he's driving, because his argument is basically this. Your identity has been changed. You have been made new. Your life must look different. Your life must reflect something else. Who you are, your identity stems now from a different source. It's not just simply your cultural heritage, your ethnicity. Your identity is now in Jesus. In other words, they aren't merely or simply just Gentiles anymore. They are so much more. In Ephesians 2, uh, if you go back and look at that, or if you remember um, when we were working through that in the series, Paul talks about how Jesus makes a new humanity, a a new race. That's kind of the context for where Paul is here. He's keeping in mind what Jesus has done in the life of the church, that he has created a new humanity. Again, it doesn't erase our our cultures or our ethnicities, but rather we now have an identity that transcends those, an identity that is common to all of us now who call upon Jesus and are in his family. In other words, Paul is saying, what once defined you is no longer meant to be the thing that primarily defines you now. So I, wanna, I just want to ask this question here at the text. Where do we derive the source of our identity? 
And, and I don't mean, I, I'm not looking, particularly if you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you, you know that the answer is supposed to be Jesus. I know that, you know that. But I, but I want you to just honestly think about this for yourself. On a daily basis, right now in this season of your life, if you had to be honest, where are, are you really looking for the source of your identity? Where are you deriving your sense of who you are? Is it status, relationships, success? I mean, you fill in the blank. Where is it that you are deriving your source of identity right now? Because ultimately what Paul is saying is derive the source of your identity from Jesus. From Jesus, because that transcends all else. So how do the Gentiles walk? Paul has said, don't walk like the Gentiles. How do the Gentiles walk? The first thing that we read here is in the futility of their minds. What does this word futility mean? Well, some definitions of it are emptiness, uh, worthlessness, vanity, purposelessness. Are you familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament? Uh, I forget how many years ago now, maybe five years ago, we went through the book of um, Ecclesiastes, and there's this refrain that is used throughout, vanity of vanities. And guess what? In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word, if you were reading Ecclesi- uh, Ecclesiastes there, is the same word that Paul uses here. It's used 39 times in Ecclesiastes. And again, it means meaninglessness, worthlessness, purposelessness. Then he goes on to say, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Now, I want you to realize something here about Ephesus and the people who lived in Ephesus. They were sophisticated people. They were very educated. And so when Paul says that they are darkened in their understanding, he is not implying that they are not smart. He's not implying that they aren't educated. That is not... um, the sense of this word that Paul is using. This isn't merely about knowledge. It's about wisdom and understanding. And those are two different things. And it's helpful to to point that out and to see that. Knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is another thing. Here's how, this is just my kind of definition. Um, Wisdom is about how we apply knowledge. And so knowledge means nothing if we don't know how to apply it. And so for the Ephesians, they could have known a lot about the world. They could have been successful, very well educated. But still, Paul says they are darkened in their understanding, in their ability to apply knowledge, in their ability to be wise. And as a result, he says, they are alienated from the life of God. They're cut off from the life of God. That that language that Paul uses, the life of God, Uh, We need to um, remember the fact that God is life. True life, abundant life, is found in God. And for us to have access to that life, we have to have access to God. But what Paul is saying is that because their hearts, their, their understanding is darkened, they are cut off from abundant life, from true life, from life as it's meant to be. Because of the ignorance that is in them, Paul goes on to say, due to their hardness of heart. Now Paul's talking about resistance. This darkening of their understanding has led to 
a moral resistance to God, to his authority over, over life. I, I've said a couple times throughout this series um, that our three values here at City Church are knowing, becoming, and doing. Knowing, becoming, and doing. And Paul is touching on all of these here in these verses. We, we've heard about the darkening of, of, of knowledge. But where Paul's going now is formation. Like, like who are we becoming? And he, he, he's calling us away from certain behaviors, doing. And so all of these are, are, are closely related. We, we can't separate them. Because if we know falsely, right, if we don't know the truth, that's going to form who we are and lead to a certain way of living. And if we do know the truth and are formed by it, that's going to lead to a certain way of of living. But we're also going to see in a few moments how what we do also shapes our knowledge and and who are we becoming. They're all interrelated. I mean, they are distinct things, but we need to be careful to not separate them out too much because... They're all wrapped up with each other. They don't know God. Their understanding is darkened, and they are formed accordingly, and it leads to how they live their lives. He says they have become callous. It's the only time uh, this word here is, is used, and it refers to a loss of sensitivity. It suggests a, a loss of feeling. Uh, You you might literally say, we we could translate it, feeling no pain. Now, here's another fact about Ephesus. Ephesus was a leading center of commerce and culture. Ephesus was a big deal, we could say. Um, It was one of the seven wonders of the world, and there was a lot of pride, um, both, I'm sure, positive pride, but negative pride, uh, in the people of Ephesus because uh, uh, of these things that were true about their city. Also located in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis, um, sometimes also referred to as the Temple of Diana. Diana, um, th- This temple was dedicated to an ancient goddess, Artemis, or um, associated with Diana, who was a Roman goddess. And in this temple, just to give you, I'm, I'm trying to give you some insight, insight into Ephesus, Some of the worst morality that you could imagine took place in this temple. Temple prostitution, crime, you name it. And so we're putting together a picture of Ephesus, a center of culture, a center of commerce, well-educated, but also incredible immorality. What Paul is arguing here, and this is really insightful, and we're going to kind of park here for a few moments, is he saying that as the Gentiles indulge themselves in their desires, in their flesh, we might say, the problem becomes, and here's what might be surprising, not an excess of feeling, but rather a loss of feeling. And this is true of humans, it's true of us, that as we just simply indulge our desires. We allow our desires to go unchecked and we just act on them. What happens is it's not at that point about um, an overwhelming amount of feeling. It's about a loss of feeling. It's actually the opposite of what we intend. And we all know this in different ways in our lives. Uh, maybe you've struggled with addiction in your life, in your past. Maybe you're struggling with addiction now. And whatever it is that you become addicted to, you, you view this as you go into it, right, as the, the, the source of, uh, of, of what's going to make you feel better, 
the, the source that's going to elevate your feeling. But what ends up happening in the end? You become numb. You, you lose feeling. This is what sin does to us. And I get it. As we read this section of Scripture and others like it, we're talking about morality and immorality. Don't do this. Do, do that. Um, and we, we, you know, inevitably, we come to uh, Scripture, um, first of all, as fallen people. Why do I bring that up? Well, because as fallen people, I, I'll just speak for myself. I won't speak for you. But as a fallen person, um, my, my, my sin gets the best of me, and I don't want there to be authority over me. I, I want to do what I want to do. Anybody resonating with this? Damon. We know what it's like, Damon. You all know what this is like. Um, and, and, and what happens? We, we resist this authority. We want to do what we want to do. And then our desires begin to go unchecked. Oh, well, if I follow through on this desire, it's going to make me feel good. And now we're into the cultural piece of it. So the first piece is we're fallen. The second piece is our culture. Our culture tells us what? That life is all about being happy. It's all about feeling good. Well, what happens with when my pursuit of wanting to be happy clashes with yours? So that can't be just simply something to live by. Because we don't all have the same goals that we're trying to attain as far as happiness. And if that really was the wisdom we live by, what would happen? We, we would clash all the time. And so that, that can't be the way. It can't be the way. And so the, where I'm going with this, what I want to get back to is I, I, I realize that as we come to a passage of Scripture like this, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard because of our fallen nature, and it's hard because of the culture in which we live. We, we think to ourselves, this is, this is outdated. Like, like, can this be real for today? But Scripture is wise. Scripture is wise. Scripture is wise because God is wise. And God is wise to how the world works. It's hard for us to receive truth. It's hard for us to be told how we're supposed to live our lives. But God does this through his word because he loves us so much. He loves us so much. And he's big enough to take our rebellion. He's big enough to take our resistance. He made a way uh, to respond to that in Jesus. But God is willing to love us so much in, in laying out how the world works, even though we're not going to like it, even though we might get mad at him, even though we might think that he is opposed to us, he's okay with it because his love is greater than our criticism of him. His love is greater than our rebellion against him. God wants what is best for us. But what is best for us is not always what we think is best for us. And so that's really where the clash begins to happen in life. And as these desires that we have, these fallen sinful desires, as they go unchecked and we give ourselves to them, like I, I can like point to this experience in my own life, and I'm sure you can, where um, you do something for the first time. I'm not going to name a specific example. You can think of an example in your own life. Something that you know you shouldn't do. Something that scripture um, calls you not to do. But you, you feel the desire, right? The, the, the sinful desire, the inclination to indulge, to do it. 
And what kind of things might you tell yourself? Well, uh, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it this one time. This one time I'm going to do it just to know what it feels like, what oftentimes happens. We do it, and it feels good temporarily. And so it's like, okay, one, one more time, or, or let me like add this. It, you know where I'm going with this. And what happens is we get later down the road in life, and we wonder how we've arrived where we have. And it was due to a series of choices along the way, a series of choices in which we allowed our desires to go unchecked and allowed the pursuit of what we thought was our happiness to rule the day. And we end up not with an overabundance of feeling, but we end up numb. We end up not being able to feel, and we know that that's not good. What happens? We don't even realize that we are wounding ourselves and others. And here's the, the, the thing. Our, it's not just an individual thing. We, we've been coming back to this theme, another theme, uh, throughout Ephesians, that um, b- both the individual and the communal nature of faith. But that, that applies in life because we might think, okay, I'm going to just sin personally here. Nobody's going to even know about it. That, that's never uh, how it works. All sin is social. All sin, all sin is both personal and social. It will have social ramifications for how you relate to others uh, directly or indirectly. And so even these choices that we make, we might think, okay, they're only wounding myself. That's not true. Other people get wounded along the way. This is the kind of thing, you're trying to break it down, make it real for you, that Paul's talking about here. So, so be careful about simply writing him off and saying, oh, this is some first century stuff that doesn't apply today. Scripture is wise to the way the world works. God loves you. He wants you to know what is true. He says, he goes on to talk about how they've given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every impurity. Greed is covetousness, right? Wanting something too much in an unhealthy way. And usually we think about greed um, when it comes to material things, right? But it's most likely the case, given the context here, is that what Paul is referring to is desire and sexual behavior, sexual immorality. And this would have been true. Um, It would have described Ephesus, what was going on there, allowing desires to go unchecked and giving themselves over to sexual immorality. Remember, knowing, becoming, doing, they overlap. And so these these sins, this way of living, walking as the Gentiles do, as Paul put it, it's holistic. It has a holistic impact on our lives. It affects our knowing. It affects our, how do I represent being or becoming? I don't know, heart, right? Maybe. And then doing, how we actually live our, our lives. This is a big deal. This is significant because we're talking about who we actually are as people. And I mentioned earlier how like, I'm, I'm sure if you think of, you could think of examples of this in your own life, where um, you, you started to give yourself to some behavior. And what began to happen? It started to shape your thinking. It started to form who you were. And so this is what happens. This is how these things relate. It, you know, it's true that what we do shapes who we are, but it's also true that who we are shapes what we do. And, and knowledge plays into that, that as well. 
And so what Paul, where is he driving with all of this? Verse 22, put, to put off your old self. Now, in this text, literally, Paul does not say as a command, put off your old self. Now, that would be an application, a right application, an implication. But Paul is referring to how the old self has already been put off in a sense. He's talking about new life in Jesus. That when we come into relationship with Jesus, we receive a new life. And and through that new life, the old self, the old way of living has been put off. But these, these things work together because it's Jesus ultimately who puts off the sin, but we are also called to respond to God's grace to us in Christ by also putting off the old self. Comes back to the, the illustration that we started with. When a person becomes a Christian, when a person walks into new life with Jesus, a new wardrobe is required. And now we're going to make this transition from talking about the old self to the new self. And as we do this, I want to say this, that it's possible that you grew up in a church environment, or maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but what you felt like you were hearing from the church was only about putting off the old self. In other words, it was only always about don't do this or that. Can anyone relate to that? And so what happens is you come to a conclusion that Christianity is not life-giving, that it's not life-giving, that it's all about rules. It's about um, being good for God to love you. That is not what Scripture teaches. Paul has done the hard work in the first three chapters, especially, and he, and he keeps doing it, but it, it, largely speaking, the first three chapters, what Paul has done is remind us of the love that we have, uh, because, how we have his love because of what Jesus has done for us. We're told that we've been chosen, that we're beloved, that our identity is safe and secure in Jesus. And because of that, new life, here's how you should live. It's such a key distinction to make. Paul is not saying, okay, do, don't do these things so that you earn God's love. He's saying because you have God's love because of grace, undeserved mercy, respond by living in these ways or by not doing these things. And when we say respond by not doing these things, we have to remember that these things are not arbitrary. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. Sometimes when it comes to the commandments of Scripture, we think that maybe God just kind of made them up out of nowhere. Like he just picked stuff. Like, okay, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do that. There need to be rules because I have authority over you. And so we need to demonstrate this authority that I have over you in some way. So I'm going to make rules and I'm just going to make them up. That, that is not how it works. That's not how morality works. The rules terrible word, the commands, the instructions of the Bible are rooted in how the world is meant to be. Let me say that again. The commands or instructions of the Bible are rooted in how the world is meant to be. In other words, how God made the world to work. And so the reason that God tells us not to do certain things and calls us out of it is because it goes against the grain of how things are meant to work. And if you do that, you will wound yourself and wound others. In other words, it's about love. God loves you. 
He wants you to walk in his ways because he actually wants you to flourish. That's, that's how we could sum this up. It's about human flourishing, believe it or not. God calling us out of a certain way of living into another way of living is because God wants us to flourish as people. And so we don't want to just focus on the putting off. Let me, you know, if you've struggled with addiction, you would know this, that it's not, it's not enough, it's not good enough to just put off. Because if you just put off and don't put on something else, what happens? You just begin to transfer your addictions to other things. Maybe you overcome the addiction to the thing that you were mostly addicted to, but you're going to transfer that. You have to do something positive. And so it's not enough to just put off. We have to put on. And what we put on is the clothing that we've already been given by God through Christ. His righteousness, his rightness, his reputation that is ours because of his work. Verse 20, here's where the transition happens. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. Guess what? Truth is relational. I I know that I fall into this trap all the time of thinking that truth is abstract. Um, But the reality is, is that truth is relational. Because according to scripture, truth is ultimately in Jesus. If we want to know what truth is, we're to abide in Jesus. And it's a beautiful picture here of life in Jesus. Because it really is about abiding in him, walking in, in new life with Jesus it's, as we do that, Jesus becomes our authority. Jesus becomes our mentor in life. And he uh, teaches us his truth. And he changes our heart so that we become more willing to submit to it and to receive it. It's discipleship. That's what a disciple does. A disciple is a follower. And Jesus is our teacher. The, the, the truth is in him. Truth is relational. And so when we talk about pursuing truth, when we talk about the importance of truth, we always have to have that relational context for it, that what we're really talking about is following Jesus in relationship, uh, abiding in him. Verse 21, or verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. What we discover here is that the Christian faith is a process. The Christian life is a process. And so there is this moment when we come into relationship with Jesus and we're genuinely changed. Like the clothes, right? The old clothes, the old self is taken off and the new clothes, the new self is put on. Like that's definitive. But we also have to grow into these new clothes. And the old clothes constantly are, you know, we're constantly reaching back to put on the old clothes. And, and, and Jesus is, is walking with us and um, commanding us, challenging us, rebuking us. You don't need the old clothes. The new clothes are sufficient. But it's a process, isn't it? It's a process. It's a process that is frustrating. It's a process that is hard. And I think it comes back to those two things that we mentioned earlier. We're fallen, and we live in a culture which tells us 
It's all about our happiness and satisfaction immediately. We're constantly rubbing up against these things. And when we come to Scripture, when we come to life in Jesus, we encounter another way of living, a way of living which requires sacrifice, It requires us to not just simply give in to our desires unchecked. You know, Paul referred to them in that verse we just read as deceitful desires. It connects back to what he was saying earlier. They're deceitful because we think that if we give ourselves to these desires, they're going to fulfill us. And they might fulfill us temporarily, but then as we talked about what happens, we realize that we are actually, we've we've become bitter and disappointed We're less fulfilled than when we started this, the the journey. It's a process and it's hard because it requires us to die to self. Our culture talks a lot about a true view of self, understanding who we really are. And the Bible does too. But the Bible requires us um, to accept some hard truths along the way. Because Scripture is wise, God loves us, He's willing to tell us hard things. And we, we, we have to embrace the fact, if we're going to walk in the wisdom of God, that we are fallen, that we, are, that we do have deceitful desires, and that we can't just simply give ourselves over to them unchecked without bringing them under the lordship and submission of Jesus. And that is so hard because that's dying to self. I, I'll be honest, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that because I think my definition of happiness is better. But God, thankfully, loves me so much that he gives me his word. He keeps coming at me with his word, and he keeps telling me how naive, how foolish I am. And little by little, he changes me in areas of my life, and I'm willing to accept the truth because I recognize that as I learn to die to self, to put off the old self and put on the new self, that even though it's excruciating pain at times, it's so good for me because Jesus is my authority, not me. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now we have the end goal in mind. What is God's business? What is he trying to do in our lives with all of this? trying to make us like himself. He's trying to restore his image in us. Now, let's do a, a little bit of biblical theology, just real quick recap of kind of the, the biblical story in a nutshell. God created human beings to flourish, and, and that remains his intent. He wants us to flourish. And, and he created this, this good, perfect world, um, this beautiful world, and he, he, he told the first humans All right, here's the deal. I've made this for you. I want you to flourish. Now walk in my ways. And what happened? They walked outside of his ways because they felt like they could do a better job of being God. And when they did that, everything fell apart. Life collapsed in on itself. We were created in the image of God, but after the fall, that image inside of us of God becomes hard to see at times. It's not erased. It's not deleted but it becomes marred, it becomes spoiled, it becomes tarnished. And so the work of redemption through Jesus is God putting us back together again, of God restoring his image in us that we might reflect him with beauty, 
that we might walk in his ways again and, and, and begin to experience flourishing. Now, remember, the definition of flourishing is not our definition. It's God's definition. But God has never promised that this process would not be hard. Dying to self in the process of redemption is the most painful thing that can happen in life. And you don't need me to tell you that. If you've been walking with Jesus, you know that. And maybe you came into relationship with Jesus thinking that this meant that your, your life was going to become better, that everything was now going to fall into place. That is not the kind of flourishing that Jesus promises us. Jesus has something more mysterious, something more difficult, something more painful in mind. And what we have to trust, uh, both in his word and through that process, is that we really are his beloved, that he's committed to us. Somehow, in some way, even though right now this feels really hard, Jesus is committed to me. He's committed to you. He's walking with us. He's putting us back together. Anything that has been broken and is worth putting back together is usually really hard to put back together, isn't it? I'm sure there are exceptions, but I think in general that's true. This is the process. It's what God's up to in the world. And it's not an easy process for us to experience. We need an inner change. Something has to happen to us from the inside. We, we focus so much on the outside. We focus so much on, all right, I got to change this behavior. I, I got to change th- this external thing about my life. When Jesus is constantly calling us to look inward, it's not that our behaviors don't matter. Hopefully you've heard me say that enough. But change begins from the inside. It's an inside out kind of change. That's how the Christian life works. Taking off, putting on. It's hard. It's difficult. It's change. Change. Change is never easy, is it? Change isn't easy when it comes to life circumstances, and change isn't easy when it comes to our own lives. But here, let me leave you with hopefully what is good news here. Yes, we are called to act, we're called to take action, we're called to turn from our deceitful desires, these other things that Paul outlines here, and to turn to Jesus. But ultimately, this is the work of Jesus. And and, and here's where this helps me a lot in my own life. Paul is not saying, all right, walk in God's ways so that you can gain this identity in Jesus. Now, I'm talking different about earning your salvation. We talked about that already. But I think even in my own life, sometimes I think that, okay, I have to not do these things or I have to do these things in order to gain my identity in Jesus. I already have my identity in Jesus. And what that means is that despite my sin, despite my fallenness, my proneness to wonder, I am still deeply loved by God because of Christ. I am his son. I am his beloved, and that truth defined, it trumps everything else, trumps my sin, my failure, my dis- uh, disappointments. My, the fact that I'm loved in Christ is what is most true about me, and this is where all of this comes full circle. We don't 
try to gain an identity in Christ, we grow into this identity. We've been given the new clothes. It's about getting used to them, getting used to wearing them and realizing that they're substantial enough. The reason that I think that we go back and we try to put on the old clothes is because we feel vulnerable. I mean, we feel naked in a sense when it comes to our inner selves. Like, I want you to just reflect on some of these things that Paul uh, talks about in the text, the darkening of their understanding, um, their ignorance, the hardness of heart, the deceitful desires, all of these things that we give ourselves to. Why ultimately do we give ourselves to them? Well, we've talked about how we like to think that we're God, how we are the authority of our lives. But I, thought, I think it's also an issue of vulnerability. We feel unsafe. We feel that we have to do something, that we have to do more to experience validity in life, to experience acceptance, to experience welcome. And that all is so insubstantial. That's why the old clothes, they eventually just kind of fall off of us because they weren't meant to be able to cover us. And so God gives us new clothes. It's, it's the righteousness and reputation of Jesus. Like that's the crazy thing that we, when we get linked to Jesus through faith, like we say this all the time, what that means is that what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. His rightness, his reputation, his holiness becomes ours in an ultimate sense. And we are to grow into those things, not try to manufacture them from the outside. They've been given to us as gifts, and we are to grow into these new clothes. And guess what? The rightness, the reputation of Jesus is substantial. It's good enough to cover us. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to keep running back to the old clothes. We do not have to allow our insecurities our sense of needing to feel loved and welcomed and cherished to drive our knowing, becoming, and doing. But rather, we can rest in the fact that we are loved by the one who created us. We are loved by the one who redeemed us. And we can bring our insecurities to Jesus at the cross. We can bring our insecurities to him. And we can receive time and time again the new clothes. And so let's daily put off the old clothes, put on the new clothes. Or, or maybe more um, specifically, we could say to uh, continue to keep the old clothes over there in the laundry basket, right? And to grow into the new clothes that Jesus has given us as a gift. Let's pray. Jesus, I think in my own life how sometimes I don't say hard things to people because it's hard, because I'm worried how they might respond to me. I'm so grateful that you're not like that. I'm so grateful that you are willing to say hard things to us. I'm so grateful that you speak truth to us. I pray that you would change our hearts pray that you would change our deceitful desires. I pray that you would give us a desire for yourself and for your word. Show us what true flourishing looks like. 
Show us what true humanity looks like as we submit ourselves to you. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit because this is difficult. It's really difficult, Jesus. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself that you would be present with us, that you would provide us the help that we need to walk in newness of life. And I pray that over time, we would come to see how unsatisfying our sin was and is, and how far more satisfying and fulfilling you and your ways are. Do this in our midst. We trust that you can. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.